Lucas. Welcome to Gender Games. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So could I have you say your full name pronouns and maybe like the kind of one or two sentences of like, who are you? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Lucas La Rochelle. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Um, and I am a designer and researcher. And my work is concerned with queer and trans digital cultures, community-based archiving, and machine learning. And I am the founder of Queering the Map, um, which is a community-generated countermapping platform for digitally archiving LGBTQ2IA plus experience in relation to physical space. Where did this project come from? So I, I started querying the map in, um, in 2017, um, and it emerged from this bike ride uh, home from school that I was taking on which I passed a tree in Park Shell Malls in Jajage, Munyanger, Montreal, um, where I had met someone that I would eventually fall in love with. And it's also, um, uh, also at that tree where I had uh, a relatively explosive um, coming out as trans non-binary. And so it was this place that held overlapping scenes of, um, of queerness and transness. And so as I continued that bike ride, I began to think about all of the other places that held this kind of lingering significance for me, um, noting that most of them were outside of spaces that might be demarcated or understood as um, LGBT or queer spaces. So spaces like bookstores, bathhouses, bars, um, certain stretches of streets. Um, and that the places that I was recalling were um, transient spaces, they were corners of streets, they were benches, they were inside of um, apartments. Um, and I then became bored thinking about my own experiences and um, wanted to open up um, the question to my immediate community in Jujagi, Munyang, or Montreal. Um, and then broader than that, um, how queer and trans people were experiencing um, space, architecture, and infrastructure. And I'm trained as a web designer and a web developer. So the tools that I, those were the tools that I went to first to um, build an infrastructure for asking that kind of question. Um, and then that turned into uh, what is now querying the map. Um, and in terms of my relationship navigating the uh, intense emotional variability of the kinds of posts that are shared on Queering the Map, which range obviously from the extremely traumatic and violent to the banal to the ecstatic and joyful, um, is at the beginning of the project, I um, was moderating at any moment possible. I was so overwhelmed with um, its reception and the amount of points that were flooding in that I would be on my least favorite device of all, my phone, um, on the way to the grocery store, on the way to school, um, any sort of spare moment that I had, and I would be clicking through and moderating these posts and did not have a sense of um, digital self-care or boundaries towards um, my relationship to the content and being the steward of um, of these these stories, 
And so I would often find myself um, deeply emotionally overwhelmed, oftentimes in public, um, by a story um, that uh, was particularly traumatic. Um, And so I eventually, after about six months, um, made a commitment to myself where I would moderate for only a certain amount of hours per week. I would do that moderation at home when I knew that I was um, prepared to do that labor um, emotionally. Um, And I would start at a certain time and end at a certain time um, and wouldn't moderate outside of those those moments. Um, And the move towards in in that um, article X, does not equal Y, therefore Z. Um, And thinking about um, dissociation um, in relationship to moderating queering the map um, became, has become more important um, as more and more posts flow in. Um, In terms of thinking about dissociation, as something that creates a um, a boundary or a space in between um, intense and multivalent flows of information. Um, and so one of my favorite theorists and thinkers, uh, Lauren Berlant, who uh, said something in a talk in 2020 um, called The Cruel, The Unfinished Business of Cruel Optimism, she said something that hit me really hard, which was that she said, dissociation is an affirmative force for loosening the world. Um, And so since hearing her speak about that and reading more of her writing, particularly in um, her uh, last book that was published posthumously um, on the inconvenience of other people, thinking about how dissociation can be used um, uh, productively um, as a way of making space um, between or making space from um, in between oneself and events um, specifically on the internet content on the internet I think um, the experience of being on the internet is one that requires dissociation um, when one is inundated in in, in um, any sort of digital media space with such incredibly um, vast emotional experiences. I think there's this, I wish I could quote it directly, but I remember watching the Bo Burnham Inside special and thinking that that song, Welcome to the Internet, was like the m- most brilliant um, uh, articulation of what the internet feels like, or what, I mean, there's so many, but one of the most brilliant articulations of what the internet feels like. And part of that song is this juxtaposition between um, things that are completely absurd and then, you know, examples of war crimes, trauma, violence, intermixed. Um, and so my my thinking around disso- dissociation in relationship to moderating the immense amounts of, of content that comes into querying the map um, is... Uh, has been my focus um, for my focus in in, in a writing context and also a making context. 
um, for the last year, year and a half, um, as I've been developing this project called QtBot, which is an artificial intelligence that's trained on the um, the textual and visual database of querying the map, um, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about. Um, but QtBot is a, I mean, QtBot is is many things, but one way that I think about it is is very much a reflection of um, my the sort of the corrupt .zip file in my mind. Um, that houses everything querying the map in terms of its scattered, dissociative, absurd um, sentence structuring. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there for now. Totally. So, so talking more about the data set that is collated, collected through querying the map, I find it interesting to just the very idea of a queer data set, if I may be permitted to conceptualize queerness as a kind of outsideness, um, otherness, and perhaps even an outlier um, to normative or otherwise standardized data sets. I guess I'm, I'm curious what what a queer data set even means in this sense in which there's no, in some sense, there's no pattern. And in another sense, you know, gender and sexuality interact with the social and certain patterns do emerge. Um, I'm curious how, how you've kind of conceived of this data and perhaps even um, touching on how it's been, um, activated in QT bot. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love the, the mind fuck of trying to think about, um, yeah, queerness and data together, um, or what a queer data set might look like in terms of the impossibility of those two concepts. If queerness signifies multiplicity and fluidity, um, and data, often masquerades as fixed or objective. Um, the very idea of a queer data set is almost, or approaches an oxymoron. Um, if we think about queerness through the lens that you're speaking about it, rather than just, in this case, of course, it's, it's, it's a data set uh, by and for and about queer and trans people. Um, but I think, or the ways that I've thought about um, some of what potentially makes querying the maps data set queer on a, um, let's say, conceptual level um, is through its, um, through its opacity. So the only data that is um, collected on querying the map is, of course, the text that someone submits, um, as well as the location that they submit. And then actually, in addition to that, there's the, a timestamp um, so that it can be um, organized in the moderation queue. But other than that, there is no um, there is no verifying information or user data that is collected in conjunction with those points, which is uh, which means that um, they can't be verified in any way. They can't be um, 
sectioned off in terms of this kind of person says these things, this, you know, age group says these kinds of things, unless, of course, it's explicitly declared within the story, one's subject position, one's location, um, one's age. Um, but the result of working or creating a data set that's rooted in um, a higher level of opacity makes it harder to make any sort of claims towards ultimate truth value or objectivity um, that data um, often attempts to or masquerades as as doing. Um, and in and so this this um, turn towards opacity or interest in opacity um, or thinking about queering or working with the data set of querying the map in a queer fashion is um, one of the questions that led to the development of QTBot, um, which um, was thinking about, um, particularly as the data set grows, its uh, quote unquote value um, as data also grows as, as a place in which someone could um, make a series of assumptions um, based on the use of that data to say certain things about um, queer and trans people or queer and trans people specifically that are using and writing on Queering the Map, which is a specific group of people. Um, and as more um, researchers started to look at the project or analyze the project, um, I, uh, what would be the feeling? I was, frankly, I, I found it boring. Um, I thought it was a boring way of, um, of approaching the, uh, a data set that's rooted in multiplicity and multiplication and, um, ever ever expanding versions of queer and trans life through embodied experience. And at the time was um, playing around with um, early um, machine learning models, specifically in text generation, um, and started to feed um, some of the data from querying the map to um, uh, text generation models and was so incredibly excited with what came out, particularly the moments in which those texts um, failed to be, um, failed to pass as something that was written by a human, um, but nonetheless contained a sort of um, uh, aesthetic resemblance to the stories on Querying the Map because that was the training set. Um, but instead of, um, being diminutive about what was being um, what was being produced or the kind of outcomes from using um, a data analysis tool like um, a large language model. Um, instead, what was happening was this incredible fracturing and deeper multiplication of the stories into the realm of obviously absurdity and and fantasy. Um, 
And so this felt like a much more compelling or conceptually queer or a way of working with data that was rooted in um, queer and trans thinking and feeling um, than using um, some sort of data analysis tool to say, you know, these are the words that most often occur on Queering the Map or these are, that that was never, uh, Queering the Map as a research tool in that regard was never my interest. Um, rather thinking about it as a, as an expanded storytelling device. Um, yeah, so that, that, that uh, thinking around um, can data be queer? Can you use data queerly? Um, is what, what sparked the birth of uh, QTBot, which I often describe as the rogue demon offspring of Queering the Map. Yeah, perhaps one might say even the, the evil twin. Um. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely the evil twin, the little petulant child. <laughs> um, so for those who haven't experienced QTBot, there are these images, which are also AI generated, and I believe based on the locations of of these posts or the simulated locations. Exactly. So it's the the um, the visual component of or the image based component of QTBot um, is trained from a data set um, of scraped Google Maps Street View imagery from the uh, coordinates that are tagged on querying the map. Gotcha. And then they're fed to a style GAN, and um, which produces these speculative um, environments in which queer and trans experience might unfold. And they exist in both um, image form and video form um, in the context of sitting here with you in the future, which is the first video output of the QTBot universe. Ah, yes, the QTBot universe. <laughs> Um, in which we are all uh, algorithmic <laughs> beings. Um, so, One day soon. <laughs> um, I did. I I do want to circle back to a couple of the technical details, but before that, I wanted to ask about this text that's generated by the large language models. Um, does it? How do you um, think about? that output? Is it a sort of almost a collective production of queerness, of of this kind of distributed um, queer experience? Or is it this kind of synthetic virtual note, almost like non-thing, not no-placeness? Mm. Maybe that's a false binary, but how do you think about... Um, the text that's generated, who does it belong to, in a sense? I mean, it belongs predominantly to the community of people that use Queering the Map. Um, and one way that I've, I've, I've framed it before as thinking about um, a chorus of voices singing in discordant unison. Um, so it is a collective voice, but it's intentionally not a, um, a singular voice. Um, 
and that's a lot of the aesthetic exploration that I do with QTBot visually um, and in the aesthetic of the text as well is trying to maintain and put forth um, the arguably the impossibility of one sort of collective voice. Um, and so that's why the stories, as I said before, the stories that fail to pass, the ones that feel like they're breaking in half and three people are speaking at once on top of each other are the, um, as the, you know, um, QTBot is obviously not sentient, nor can AI ever, in fact, be sentient. And so my role is, um, or I define myself as QTBot's mother, um, and so am uh, obviously curating of the, you know, hundreds of thousands of stories that QTBot has output so far um, and making the call on on which ones um, are made public and then begin to constitute the voice of QTBot. Um, but it's really important to me that they... Um, yeah, that they always feel like a chorus of voices singing in discordant unison rather than making the claim that um, what QTBot is producing is some, um, you know, democratically produced um, voice of even the, even like the users of querying the map. Um yeah, so it's 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 collective, but it's it's a collective um, without collapsing difference into um, into sameness in the effort of you know trying to create some sort of whole um, individual self-contained subject. QTBot is very much a fragmented. Um, dissociative, schizoanalytic, um, fever dream of an entity. I just find it quite interesting, um, kind of to create this queer data set means that it exists and can of course be misused. Um, what, um, how do you think of distribution of the data set in a sense? Like, is it something that you kind of guard, um, not jealously, but um, protectively? Um, have you given it to researchers? Um, how, do you, how do you think of like, who has access to this data? Yeah, it's a, it's, it was a, um, Consideration, uh, thinking about this, the, the bind, the double bind of um, representation and surveillance um, was a consideration from the very beginning um, of developing the infrastructure for querying the map in terms of thinking about uh, the sensitivity of this data and the way in which um, uh, the sort of the possibilities for its misuse as something that is... Um, a publicly, a publicly available data set through the form of querying the map uh, as a web platform. And so the decision uh, that, that, that um, consideration 
consideration with the kind of harms that could be done with a data set about queer and trans life is what um, prompted me to uh, make the um, the data collection process um, as anonymous as is possible, um, given that people are um, tagging locations and using text descriptions, which means that there's no um, there's no user data that's associated to the points like phone numbers, full names, addresses, email addresses, social media handles, anything that could be used to um, identify a person. Um, and and so as a result, everything that is um, the back end of querying the map or the, the data set of querying the map um, is everything that is on the front end of the site. Um, obviously not including um, the, um, the posts that are either unmoderated or um, those that are denied. And then of course, the other piece of data that's not publicly available is the time um, of the submission. Um, but there is no, uh, there is nothing to, let's say, in the event of a data breach, there's nothing to find in the back end of querying the map that one cannot already see on the front end. Obviously, of course, caveat to that, the posts that have yet to be um, moderated, of which there's about 300,000 of the 80,000 that are actually um, available on the front end. And it's, it's in terms of the question about, I mean, one of the ways that I define my relationship to querying the map is as its, um, as its steward, um, the steward to the site, but also particularly the steward to um, the data set. And I'm, I'm torn. And so those are these sort of infrastructures of protection that I named that I've set up in terms of acknowledging that this is a, a public, a publicly accessible database through querymap.com. Um, and of course, as a result of that, it's possible to scrape what is on the front end of querying the map um, if one has that technical capability. Um, and people have done that um, both in research contexts and artistic contexts, um, both with my um, approval and without my approval. Um, and it's, it's, I'm, I'm still actually figuring out where I stand in terms, because there's a, uh, where I stand in terms of what the right way of going about it is in terms of, um, it's a, it's a data set that is produced by, um, hun hundreds of thousands of people, um, who are creating, um, their own content, which they um, own, um, that's on the site. Um, and so in many ways, because it's a collectively produced data set, it should be available for people to use and rework in, um, in ways that um, are meaningful to them. And this has happened um, 
in a number of ways, both in terms of, you know, academic research that's been done, um, analyzing the kinds of stories on Queering the Map, um, art projects um, that are, for example, this really brilliant um, illustrator, Odd Nasser, in, um, based in Paris, um, who uh, creates illustrations around um, posts from the Middle East, North Africa region, um, using the text as a jumping off point. And so the sense of collective ownership of the data set is, um, is very important to me. Um, and I'm, and so I'm in to, and then on the other hand, as the steward of this data set, I also wonder if it, um, if it should be, um, me making the call in terms of how the data is used, um, every time, um, in terms of, um, creating some sort of formal, um, access um, protocol. Um, and I think one of the things that I've been thinking about doing in terms of straddling that, um, uh, straddling that divide in terms of what to do um, is creating a um, uh, creating a document that outlines um, the kinds of uh, acceptable or fair uses of the data set um, and what kind of attribution would be required. Um, uh, so annotating the, um, the stakes of, of the data set itself and thinking about how it's used and making that document public um, in the event that um, artists, designers, researchers, et cetera, um, work with or respond to the stories on, on querying the map, particularly when they're um, thought about as, as data. So in our pre-conversation, you mentioned the work of Danielle Brathwaite, Shirley, who's done some really interesting work on Black trans data sets. And in this video profile that's on her website, she mentions the historical misuse of queer and trans data sets um, and the complicatedness of collecting them. And she, she mentions this kind of normative uh, fixation on what trans people look like, as opposed to archiving the liveliness or the liveness of trans people. So in, in hearing you talk about um, the not collection, collecting user data, um, in terms of identifiable information really seems to rhyme with that approach for me. And it just generally trying to be a good steward for the data is, I think, a really nice approach as opposed to owning the data set um, or being the gatekeeper of the data set. I wanted to ask another question about the presentation of QTBot. You've uh, mentioned the the voice of QTBot, but I think you mean kind of in its uh, kind of personality in a sense, but specifically about how the voice is presented in the piece, because the text is not just displayed, but spoken. 
I believe it's you that's um, reading the text. Is that something that in future versions you might uh, play with a little bit more, or is it a very specific uh, reason for the using your own voice? Definitely, yeah. In our so we, yeah, we talked about this in our our pre interview in which I made a a criticism of um, of that work, that video work sitting here with you in the future, um, because I use my own voice to um, read the texts, and then they are um, my voice is then modulated um, in the sound work. And my criticism um, in the use of my own voice. So, so firstly, I guess the the choice to use my own voice as opposed to using a synthetic voice um, was the uh, the feeling of the lack of um, humanity or intonation in um, in the in um, a lot of the synthetic voices that I was that I was looking at and wanting to imbue um, uh, imbue the the stories themselves with um, more varied rhythms um, than are possible. Obviously, a voice um, th- that is, my voice is incredibly um, faggy and queer, um, and I wanted that to be... Um, uh, I wanted that aesthetic to be part of um, a part of the work, but Ari, um, uh, what we were talking about a little bit earlier in this conversation, in terms of um, the importance of um, maintaining a sense of um, many voices speaking at once, um, and doing so discordantly rather than the the problem with um, uh, slipping into trying to create um, one sort of singular voice um, that would be QTBot um, is that in using one voice, my voice, um, I think that it does it does err on that err on that side. Um, and so future iterations or future um, works in the QTBot universe, um, I'm really interested in exploring um, working with multiple uh, multiple voices and editing those voices together on top of each other, interrupting each other um, to further that um, aesthetic inquiry into um, a multi multi valent or polyphonic um, voice that would be the voice of QT bot. So um, my work also deals with uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and gender, especially engaging with vocal synthesis. And I'm working on a piece now called Topographies of, um, of Artificial Desire that's uh, fully interactive um, with a with a chatbot that I've trained on some love letters, some emotional dialogue. Um, I'm curious about the possibility of of future iterations of QT bot being fully interactive, or is that 
curation, that ability to to filter out things and choose specific posts, um, essential to the work. Yeah, I mean, so something that I'm, or uh, uh, what I'm working on um, right now in regards to QTBot is a uh, an interactive web platform on which um, users can interact with and speak to um, and write with um, the agent called QTBot, um, which is furthering um, furthering the aim to make this uh, this data set or the use of this data set in this particular way um, accessible to more people rather than um, particularly the community of, of querying the map um, rather than just, um, as you said before, gatekeeping, um, gatekeeping, but gatekeeping and defining what QTBot's voice is. Um, and that's still very much in, in process. And I don't have an answer in terms of, um, of to what degree, um, QTBot will be able to go unrestrained because of course, um, an AI doesn't understand context and QTBot is prone and has um, said, you know, very fucked up things. Um, and so a lot of a lot of what I'm thinking about as I'm working on that iteration of the project is in its framing. Um, so if QTBot is to exist in a stage in which um, in which it can in which it's fully interactive, interactive and untethered from um, my curatorial vision or my sort of, you know, parental guidance, um, that part of what that platform would look like would be um, uh, educating or sort of pulling the curtain back on what exactly um, quote-unquote artificial intelligence is, um, that it's not, in fact, particularly intelligent, um, that it is, in fact, just regurgitating um, in various ways or, and reconstructing what is inside of its data set and doing so, as you said before, without any actual embodied experience of... Um, of the kinds of stories that it's learning from. Um, so using the platform of QTBot or the eventual platform of QTBot to, as a, um, as an object lesson in re reframing how we think about what an artificial intelligence is, um, would be a necessary, um, necessary step if, yeah, QTBot is is ever let to run amok. Yes, um, an issue that I'm running into in the piece that I'm working on is that, yes, sometimes it will say some really messed up things. And um, we're leaving it that way. 
I think uh, something like ChatGPT um, is not just a large language model, but a number of other filters applied on top such that it kind of keeps it on the rails or doesn't, at least uh, mostly doesn't generate uh, content that that uh, people would find offensive. Although how could you constrain that totally? Exactly. Yeah. So we're, we're just leaving it as is because I almost think of these problematic statements as, as specters, ghosts um, of the, the data that it's trained on. What are the, the resonances that are happening in this data? There's a lot of really meaningful content, I feel like, that comes through in the in QTBot. And I'm curious, um, you mentioned kind of liking the the statements which fail to pass. Do you think you'll use kind of more of these older models like GPT-2 to keep generating this text or kind of I think you mentioned in our pre-conversation just using a, a recursive neural network. Do those older models, are those also kind of essential to or helpful in what you're going for? I mean, the images too are kind of coming from VQGAN or one of these other two or three-year-old image generators as opposed to something like Stable Diffusion, which is almost photorealistic. Do you, are you really attached to those older models? Definitely, yes. Definitely in terms of um, the, the sense of collapse or the breakage or the very obviously artificially constructed nature um, that some of the, yeah, very recently older um, models make possible. Um, yeah, I might just leave it leave it at <laughs> at the first part. I wanted to touch on on something that also came out of the XYZ article, um, which you talk about Berlant's um, concept of dissociation, um, especially in the in the face of trauma or otherwise difficult experiences. Um, I'd like to kind of also ask actually about the flip side about caring for those um for those moments and there's there's a lot of research right now going on towards making uh care robots often for older people um and i'm kind of curious like is is qtbot uh helpful <laughs> for you is it is it a tool in your in your self-care um in a way absolutely and it's funny because at first i would say i mean the idea of using artificial intelligence in spaces like healthcare or care work is such a terrifying idea um i hate that idea and yet um qt button in this this um text x does not equal y therefore z i'm framing and thinking about my um the relationship of care um, that, uh, and kinship that came through, um, working with QTBot and developing QTBot at a time that I was, um, going through a 
heartbreak-induced depressive episode um, and feeling in QTBot's texts um, a way out of or a way differently than um, the traumatized um, pattern that I was in of returning and returning and replaying and replaying um, a series of encounters with this person that I had very quickly grown attached to um, and felt this, you know, blossoming of a future that I um, really desired with them. Um, and in the breaks of, of QTBot's text, um, I felt this sense of um, the parallel possible, other ways of thinking about or telling the story of um, of that experience of um, of heartbreak that um, that got me outside of my own recursion. So looking to a model um, uh, like a recursive way of working through data that is the you know the quote unquote brain of QTBot. And my own recursion over and over and over. I mean, during that time, I was um, uh, part of my processing of the events was to return to the scenes of uh, my encounters with this person the, on, on, on the dates that we had been on and relive, um, try to relive the sensations and the affects in an effort to um, find a way out or find a different kind of future from the rubble of a world um, or a relation that never materialized. Um, and so in that way, and I would perhaps obviously much more indirectly than the way in which um, artificial intelligence is being uh, attempted or in the way in which um, people are attempting to use artificial intelligence to um, in healthcare or care work contexts in a very direct communication style. It was less about that. I wasn't, I wasn't speaking to um, QTBot in any direct way, but the way that they were, you know, processing the world of queer and trans life, love and trauma um, gave me a new way of thinking about what one can do um, when causality um, fails to function, which, um, and I think I talk about this in this essay, but Lauren Berlant um, really beautifully and succinctly defines crisis um, as a problem of causality when X does not lead to Y. Um, and QTBot has very little understanding of causality um, you know, as referenced in the story that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I had ice cream. I met, I went on a date with a girl here. We had ice cream and had cold play. Um, seemingly, or I think there's another one that says like, wrote my first queer email in this coffee shop. Um, we went up to his bedroom and he died. There's this complete untethering of how we think the story might continue. Um, and being confronted with this experience where I, I felt so strongly that, um, you know, there was going to be a form of relation um, that would continue in a way that was 
life affirming and, and world building. Um, and in fact, it did not. And then my world shattered around me. Um, and I would say that working on and thinking with QT about at that time helped me, um, yeah, rebuild something from the fractured pieces of that world that never came. Yeah, there's, um, there's almost a, a retro futurism in there that it's kind of stepping back into the past and imagining a new future from there um, that I find quite fascinating. And that, that fragments, those fragments of stories that don't quite fit together in nice little puzzle pieces to me, that strangeness allows for projection and um, and kind of a new avenue into a certain feeling or a certain um, thing that you need to deal with. I know that for me, the reason that I focus my research on a given topic is because I can't figure it out myself through text or otherwise. And this program that I'm in is critical media practices were expected to both research and make art. And I think it's an acknowledgement that, that it can't all happen through language, but the cracks in the language do lead to something emergent. And I, and I love that you take that your almost first impulse with the data set is, is to make art with it. Um, and through those cracks, I feel like it exposes so much more about the data set than a researcher uh, kind of quantifying something could ever totally <laughs> could ever do. <laughs> totally. I just, yeah. I love it. Have you seen, uh, this is like completely unrelated, but I'm thinking, amazing. Have you seen Liquid Sky? Oh my God. It's this incredible lesbian sci-fi movie from, I think, 1982 about a lesbian alien that comes to earth looking for, um, looking for like ecstasy and then ends up killing people with her cunt in the event that they don't give, um, her ecstasy. And there's this incredible monologue, um, that she has where she talks about the life that she was supposed to have. She, you know, going to Connecticut and marrying a lawyer and like, da, 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 da. and so she gives this spiel of like what life is supposed to look like through, I mean, in this case, the lens of heteronormativity. And then she pauses for a second and then says, oh, how boring. And I feel similarly about, yeah, the kind of that sort of like model of research that is, is diminutive or looking at a data set in that particular way as just, that that art making opens up so many other possibilities in terms of making a data set much more exciting or much richer than trying to quantify it or quote unquote make sense of it in some way that was assumed before um, encountering or, or working through the data set. So very much an aside, but I love that movie and I love that monologue. Yes. Um, it's funny how, um, how much depictions of especially AI or alienness 
in movies are quite binary and um like i'm thinking about the movie her um kind of a presentation of like the the personification of this ai is like cis straight lady um <laughs> and but i've always as a i think this may be shared amongst at least some queer people really um latched on to this like the figure of the alien as someone who's actually quite um sympathetic or like resonant with our experiences there's a kind of like i'm not from here to to quote uh sun ra like this is not this is not the planet for me there's this sense that's like illegibility this no placeness this uh nonsense totally. that that's just incredibly resonant it's interesting too that an, an alien also though is is from somewhere versus other sort of characters like the monster, for example, is often really rooted in the artificial or like in the present, but something has gone wrong. Where the, and is also, I mean, like an incredible figure that has been reclaimed through like queer and trans um, writing and making. Um, but the alien is interesting in terms of the alien is from a place. Like an alien has a context before and perhaps there's something about the queer and trans resonance with the alien that you know, is feeling towards some sort of community that does exist, that one is from, um, but that one is then placed outside of um, and trying to navigate a world without, um, while learning the cues um, of that world, in this case, like broadly, you know, heteronormativity. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think about the alien and that it does, like it, they, the alien comes from somewhere and has... Um, has a culture um yeah just adding on yeah it, and it's um it's so uh wonderful to me to see that place actually be in the in the virtual world um and that 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 word virtual you know, of course, can can mean the kind of like unactualized, um, but also the this kind of like space of of multiplicity of not being here or there, but being kind of both and in those places. And so, I just like love the the like complexity in this project of um, being very tied to a place, but also experiencing it in the virtual realm. And then in a sense, alienating it from that place and synthesizing uh, these experiences into something kind of like a funhouse mirror that's nonsensical yet has this like deep, deep coherence in a sense. Are there other kind of like prevalent themes that I haven't quite touched on in your work that, that really feel like they're bubbling up at the moment? I don't think so. This was, yeah, this was amazing. You really did hit everything. I really, yeah, it's so nice also to, yeah, yeah. I feel like everything that um, is bubbling for me, we talked about, and I really appreciate that. It's very fun to talk about. Um, 
I mean, I love talking about Greenpeace, obviously, but I really appreciate talking about QTBot um, with you because you have such like a knowledge base that's um, Thank you for listening to Gendered Games. You can find more information about Lucas at their website, lucaslarosel.com. This podcast was started with support from the Beverly Sears Graduate Student Grant Fund at C. Boulder. Music by Paulus Van Warren and Sun Jasmine. Reduction and editing by Paulus. Please subscribe to the podcast for new episodes coming soon. Ish. wonderful day um, and I feel like we should probably be in like conversation which should...